As many of you know, in uh, the fall of 1966, I came into the church life in the Lord's recovery through the church in San Francisco. Right? I would not say that I left my heart in San Francisco, but I left with San Francisco in my heart. So it's a delight to be with you again. Most of the time now for conferences, I and the brothers in carrying out their portion of the ministry prepare outlines. But as I was about to begin working on the outline, I was prevented by the Spirit inwardly from doing that and had the sense Don't try to write an outline. The message is still developing. And it has been developing over a period of weeks. This week, the development accelerated today. And it continued until I got up right now. So who knows what will happen by the time we are finished. But I will present to you and read to you a number of verses which will provide the basic structure of the message. And actually, I will give a two-part message tonight, the first part, the second part, tomorrow night. In a sense, you may have the feeling that when we leave tonight, The message was complete because we will cover a matter, I believe, quite thoroughly. So I want to tell you what the full title of the two-part message is, but I won't say anything more about the second part, except that I have the inner sense it will be explosive, spiritually explosive, not in the sense of stirring us up, but in the sense of something emerging from the Lord's being that uh, will be quite striking. So the title of the message for which you have no outline is Living for God's Eternal Purpose and Being Saved from This Crooked and Perverted Generation. Living for God's Eternal Purpose. If we are to live for God's eternal purpose, we need to be saved from the present crooked and perverted generation. That is Paul's utterance from Philippians chapter 2. If we would be saved from this crooked and perverted generation, then we must be living in the context of a normal human life for God's eternal purpose. And so we begin tonight with focusing on the first half, which is living for God's eternal purpose. And I'll present this in two parts. The first will be to examine from some crucial verses what God's eternal purpose 
purpose is. And then we will go on to consider with Paul as the pattern, what does it mean to live a human life on the bridge of time for God's eternal purpose? And I'll point out that in no way does this involve being peculiar, uh, not living a, a normal or ordinary human life in all of its stages. What it means is that whatever our age is, whatever our stage is, whatever our situation is, there and at that time, inwardly and before God, we are living for his eternal purpose. When we sang hymn 1325 again, altogether singing the first five stanzas three times, I was impressed with the use of the word time in that first stanza. I realize if you're about 19 or 21, you may have a different view of time I was once 19 and 21, half a century plus ago, and we may have a different sense about it, but it's helpful to realize God planned something in eternity past. He made decisions concerning us. He chose us. He predestinated us in eternity past without asking our permission. He chose us to be holy, Ephesians 1.4. He predestinated unto sonship, Ephesians 1.5. We have no choice. The gospel reached you at a certain time. You responded. You called on the Lord. He entered into you. You were born of God. Your sins are forgiven. You have the life of God. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be holy and be a son of God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then... What God planned in eternity past, when consummated, will endure in the new heaven and the new earth, ever new, ever fresh, forever. And in time, we're merely travelers. Time is a bridge. And whether or not our lives contribute to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose, depends on what is governing our journey through the measure of time assigned to us. And none of us knows how large that measure is. But surely, my feeling is, and my longing is, as your brother, as a member of the body, is that when I meet the Son of Man at the judgment seat of Christ, and he evaluates or presents his evaluation of my life and service, that there would be the mutual realization between us in which he could say, Ron, your life on earth contributed to the fulfillment of my heart's desire, my eternal purpose.
It is possible to be a believer, a genuine, regenerated believer, and to be such a believer in a genuine local church and end up with nothing to present to the Lord when you see Him. I was reminded, and I don't refer to this verse as a threat, not even as a warning. It's just there. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, which is Christ himself. Let everyone take heed how he builds upon it. He's now talking about the saints in the churches, in particular about the workers, the full-time workers. Then he said, we may build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or with wood, grass, and stubble. Then he went on to say, the day is coming when all of our work will be tested by fire. And the fire will burn to determine what sort of work that was. Today I had reason, I will not go into the details, to do a search on Amazon books for books written by certain persons that I know to some extent. And I went through the detailed table of contents of two of them. And the sense I had before the Lord was, the words seemed very good, but there's no reality in this document. There's no reality. There's just thoughts presented in words. I use that as an example that anyone who is serious in pursuing the Lord and who knows the truth concerning the kingdom, will want to be on a line for his entire life as a believer, including all the stages of his human life, to be on a line which will issue in something gold in the divine nature, silver in the redemption of Christ, precious stones, in the transformation of the Spirit, and that contributes to the building up of the church as the body of Christ. So now I begin to present some verses to you. We're not having a Bible study, but the sequence, I believe, is significant. We start with 2 Timothy 1.9. And this verse tells all of us why we were saved. So he's speaking of God. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the times of the ages. So we focus on on this. God saved us according to his own purpose. 
When I was saved, just weeks before I turned 16, I had no understanding of this. And I was in a Christian denominational environment, which was unable to give me any understanding of this. Then some years later, I got my Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Seminary. None of those professors gave me any understanding of this. But by the Lord's mercy, through the gates of the church in San Francisco, I came into the Lord's recovery, and a little man from Chifu gave me an understanding of the purpose for which I was saved. God saved you on purpose. He didn't just save you so you would escape eternal perdition or a severe judgment of God. He saved you so that you, for the rest of your life, would live for God's eternal purpose. So let me define it, and then we'll go to the verses in Ephesians which support this definition. God's eternal purpose is to produce and build up the church as the corporate expression of Christ, the body of Christ, consummating in the new Jerusalem as the wife of the redeeming God. That is God's eternal purpose. It is to have a corporate expression. Christ himself is a personal expression of God in all that he did. But God's desire is that this Christ, as the Spirit, would enter into us, make his home in our heart, and saturate our being, and thereby reproduce himself in all of us, then build all of us together in oneness so that corporately we are his expression. And that is the definition of the church. And the church is organic. It's the organic body of Christ. And what is the church in this age will consummate into the new Jerusalem, which is symbolized as a city, but she's called the wife of the Lamb. So certainly the redeeming God is not going to marry a metropolis. He's going to marry a person. So I repeat, the purpose for which we were saved is God's plan to produce and build up the church, the body of Christ, as the corporate expression of Christ, consummating in the new Jerusalem as the wife of the redeeming God, the fact that the consummation is a wife indicates that the deepest desire in God's heart is to have a married life with a counterpart that he will produce to satisfy his longing. Now we turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 9 through 11. And before I do, 
I would like to honor the Lord's mercy and also show proper respect for a certain servant of the Lord by giving you a testimony. In August of 1966, I was in a situation where every morning for five or six weeks, I had the time to study the word and I had the leading to study Ephesians in both the Greek and the English text. I had read Ephesians a number of times. I was familiar with what the verses said. But I didn't know what the verses meant. And then I came to these verses. Let me read them first, and then I'll refer to the rest of this. And to enlighten all, that they may see what the economy of the mystery is, which throughout the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, in order that now, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies, the multifarious wisdom of God might be made known through the church according to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. After I read these verses, in the two languages I mentioned, I literally gasped in amazement. I was just astounded. And I realized I have no remote idea what Paul is saying. And then this prayer came out spontaneously. Lord, the man who can show me what this means, I will follow that man. Meaning, I'm not looking for a person to follow. But if someone can show me what these verses mean, I can trust that person's teaching of the word. If he understands this, then I'm willing to learn from him. Then about two months later, uh, my wife and I are in Oakland running this hotel with the kitchen and living room week by week. And I met a brother at the end of a little prayer meeting for men who had just come into the church in San Francisco. And eventually only he and I were remaining. And he said, I could tell from your prayers that you've been reading Watchman Nee. I said, that's correct. He said he has a co-worker, Witness Lee. And there are local churches raised up, not only in China, because I had read the normal Christian church life, but in the United States. And Brother Lee lives in California, although he's in Taiwan. Then he gave me some publications. There were some they really were printed out more or less on a ditto master. Some of you will have to do a Google, Google search to know what that is. But we live, come from my generation. We come from prehistoric times. And so we're aware of that. Then he gave me a magazine called The Stream. And I was intrigued by that. 
And the main article was entitled, God's Purpose for the Church, in three sections. And the second section was an explanation of these three verses from Ephesians chapter 3. And so the Spirit shined on me, and I saw the truth. Then I read one of the copies of something else on the ground of the church. And the third message was on the continual burnt offering. And so it was the truth that captured me. I was seeking for what God considered a church to be. I was not an idealist. I was not looking for a perfect church. I had no concept of what a church should be. I'm not looking for any kind of meeting. I'm not looking for love as if I'm the center of the universe. I want to find a group of people that will love me. I just want to find a genuine church. And so, when my wife and I came to the first meeting of the church in San Francisco, we became Caucasians four and five in the church in San Francisco. (laughs) And it didn't make any difference. Why would it make any difference? I don't care what's the, the racial or ethnic makeup of this church or any other church, is this the church that I'm home? So these verses, they're just so exceedingly precious. And in verse 9, Paul says his commission is to enlighten people. In Acts 26, that's what the Lord told him. He said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles You enlighten them. You turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God. To enlighten all that they may see what the economy of the mystery is. The mystery is God's purpose hidden in himself. The economy is God's plan and arrangement to carry out his purpose. Which throughout the ages has been hidden in God. Then verse 10, in order that now, not in another age, in order that now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, the multifarious wisdom of God might be made known through the church. This verse in particular baffled me. What is this? The principalities and powers are primarily the evil angelic powers that are over all the nations, over all the nations, we know this from Daniel, that are part of Satan's kingdom. But God will put them all to shame by manifesting through the church his multifarious, his manifold wisdom. And he wants to do it now. He wants to have a church on the earth now where through the church he can put to shame the evil powers in the air. Then in verse 11, Paul says, this is according to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we go back to chapter 1 for some more 
understanding concerning this eternal purpose. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Okay, the first part. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Allow me to give another part of my personal history with the Lord, which is just a testimony of his mercy. For some reason, as I was concluding my theological study in Princeton, New Jersey, somehow I had learned or heard concerning God's will, there's what he permits and what he has ordained. So there is his permissive will. That is what he will allow you to do, especially if your heart is set on doing it. It's like a parent that has to give more and more freedom to an upper age teenager. You're not a little girl. Whether you want to do what I feel you should do, I have to respect your will as a young adult now. You're 18 now. Or there's the perfect will of God mentioned by Paul in Romans, which is what God ordains, what's in his heart. And for some reason, I just made a decision in my room. Lord, I choose your perfect will. I will not accept your permissive will. Based on that decision, for the next two years, the Lord began to deal with me to separate me from everything and anything that was in the realm of his permissive will. But I didn't know what the will of God was. And one particular portion in Matthew 7 that's focused on the Father's will uh, really caught my attention. I wouldn't say it troubled me, but it very much alerted me. Because the Lord said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of the heavens. But he who does the will of my Father who is in the heavens. Then he says, in that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did works of power in your name. And they did. The Lord allowed them to use his name to do those things. And he, and he will say to them, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I do not know you. Then I realized, Lord, I have been preparing since I was 16 years old through high school the, those last two years, four years of undergraduate, three years at Princeton Seminary. I've been preparing to do something. You know, I realized the whole thing was in the realm of your permissive will. And so based on that decision, he began to separate me. And then I found out when I came into the church life, I think I mentioned 
through San Francisco, right? I'm just fond of referring to that. It began to be revealed through the ministry. Then eventually, I located the verse which explains that God's will is the unique source of every positive thing in the universe. That's Revelation 4.11. Because of your will, all these things were and were created. So God's will is the source. And God's will is what God wants. So in this verse, Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will. In writing an article for Affirmation and Critique a few years ago, I started to do a search of books on Amazon.com. I found hundreds of them. There might have been 2,000. I couldn't bear even just to check on them. All of them. But they all had the same focus. God's will for me. I don't know God's will for your life. I didn't find a book which says God's will for God. What God wants. What God desires. The whole universe exists. Our solar system exists. Our planet exists. The earth, North America exists. San Francisco exists at least as a geographical area, I'm not sure the city is permissive or perfect. <laughs> Probably the former. So what, what does he want? That's the mystery. But it was made known because what God wants is the corporate expression of Christ, first through the church as the body of Christ, and then ultimately as the new Jerusalem. So making known the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. And I love Brother Lee's definition of this expression, good pleasure. It's heart's desire. Heart's desire. So in God's will is what brings joy to his heart, what fulfills the longing of his heart. And that is to have his corporate expression. And he purposed this in himself. And if later you would read one of the footnotes, you will, re you will find out that God himself is the source. Nothing will prevent him from carrying out his eternal purpose. Even if 99.9% .9 of the Christians alive on the earth live in the realm of God's permissive will, God will have some that will spend their whole life living in his perfect will, and through them, he will carry out his purpose in this age. Then in verse 11, we read this, in whom that is in Christ, also we were designated as an inheritance, having been predestinated according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you are here tonight 
My understanding is because you were predestinated in eternity past to participate in God's eternal purpose. And I mentioned the verses that are earlier in this chapter, chosen to be holy, chosen, predestinated unto sonship. That means chosen to have the nature of God, predestined to have the life of God in order to be the body of Christ and the wife of the redeeming God. And now we are predestinated according to the purpose of the one okay, who is working. And one advantage, and it really is an advantage, of being older and having decades to look on. And your memory is keen, your mind is still keen, maybe keener than before, who knows. And then this begins to make sense. The one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Then I look back. 1959. My girlfriend. Sharon broke up with me. <laughs> there in the spring of 1959, I had no idea. That was something working out, working out according to the counsel of God's will. But as I got a perspective, I can say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I didn't marry Sharon. Thank you, Lord. Oh, oh what a. What a drastic situation that would have been. Thank you, Lord. And this is why Jacob at the end, remember what he said? The one who shepherded me all my life long. But he, he, he loved Rachel. Sometimes I advise the fourth term brothers when they ask for fellowship about courting a sister. said, so whatever you do, don't follow Jacob's pattern. How did he begin his courtship? He went up to Rachel, kissed her, and started crying. <laughs> I don't know if that worked for Jacob, but it won't work with you. <laughs> and so, he, he, she was so beautiful. He, he was willing to work for Laban for seven years. Then he wakes up in the tent, you know, no electricity. And there's no Rachel, there's Leah. We're not told in Genesis that Jacob lifted up his hands and said, all Leahs work together for good. There's no way when you're in it. There's no way. It's, it's humanly impossible. And usually God remains silent when you're in the situation. You're asking why, but he can't tell you why. But as we look back, you realize this verse is really true. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. What's that? C-O-U-N-S-E-L, counsel. Well, after God formed his purpose, there was a counsel among the three of the Godhead to consider how we will work this out. This is all in eternity past. This involves creation. This involves predestinating millions of believers. It involves every one of us known ahead of time. So there is the council is God's way to carry out his will as it relates to each one of us. 
And it is a great blessing to surrender everything and just let God be God to you in his counsel. You are the only wise God. You know what you're doing. Then, one other verse, and then we'll shift gear and go to the matter of living for God's eternal purpose. This is an exceedingly familiar verse. As I commented recently, like 48 hours ago, because this verse is so familiar, I want to read it so that it's fresh. Romans 8.28 And we know, not we believe, not we hope, not we think, but we know, we know, This is something you learn in the body. We know, the body knows that all things work together for good. doesn't stop here. To those who love God, comma, to those who are called according to his purpose, period. The verse doesn't say all things work together for good to everybody. One of the proverbs in our folk culture is time heals all wounds. I once saw some graffiti which turned it around and said, time wounds all heals. (laughs) All things, all matters, all persons, all situations in our life Work together for good to those who love God. It doesn't say here, those who love the Lord. It doesn't say here, those who love the Father. It says those who love God. This means it's now settled in your being that you love God when he is acting in your life as God with his supreme authority, like the potter who has authority over the clay. There's a distinction. Yes, there's... The Lord said in John 20, I send to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's the same person in the Godhead, the God and Father. But when we relate to the Father, this is intimate. This is endearing. The Father cherishes, loves his children. When relating to God as God, we're touching his sovereignty, his godhood, his right to do whatever he wants. And it's when we reach the point where we love God, We love God, and all of us are the same. It's easy to say this when you're at a happy time in a meeting, but when something quite devastating happens, it's not an easy matter to say, I love God. We're all the same until we're transformed. We we question, we question, we ask him, How can this happen? How can God do this? And he remains silent. 
But I'd like to do something tonight that I believe the Lord has been waiting a long time for me to do. I do this for His sake, and I do this to shame the enemy. I won't go into the detail, but I'm illustrating this point in the following way. There is a matter that has been causing my heart to ache for more than 21 years. And thousands of prayers have been offered by scores and scores of saints. No answer, no action. But tonight, I would like to testify to the principalities and powers. My God, who is silent, who is not answering, who is not now doing anything. He is righteous. He is faithful. I vindicate him. He is my God. God is righteous. He's righteous when he speaks. He's righteous when he's silent. He's righteous when he acts. And he's righteous when he doesn't act. He's righteous when he's present. And he's righteous when he hides. I love you, God. And we can only do this based upon 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Then this is an apposition. The same group of people to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. So the more we realize that we have been called, this echoes 2 Timothy 1.9, we have been called according to God's purpose. So I love God. I know that I'm called according to his purpose. And then we can say, we know. All things work together for good. What's the good? Not for you to have a, a nice... Life, the Apostle John lived into his 90s. He spent some time in a Greek island. It's not one of the beautiful Greek islands. It was a rocky island. He probably was sentenced to hard labor in a quarry at 90 plus. The Apostles didn't have happily ever after endings to their life. But they could look back on everything and realize All things work together for good, and that good is defined in the next verse, and the purpose is defined in that verse, verse 29, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So another way of defining God's purpose is that he wants to have many sons who are the many brothers of Christ, These brothers, these sons are the many members of the body. And then the gender switches. They all become the bride, the wife. So all the sisters are brothers and all the brothers are the wife. So God has gender equality. He nullifies everybody. And so sisters, you are brothers and brothers, you're part of the wife. I think we have a harder adjustment to make, right? Anyway, so this is God's purpose rather briefly presented. Then, what 
What does it look like to live, to live for God's purpose? I pointed out in the beginning, and I repeat now, God has ordained that we live ordinary human lives in every stage. So our children need to be raised in a proper way. We need to take care of their education. Once we realize their capacity, their interest, their ability, we foster their development at the highest level. Then, not everyone, but a large proportion of us, we get, may get married in our 20s or 30s or at another time. We have a family. We have a job. We have a trade. We have a profession. We may advance in it. We go through young adulthood. Young adulthood officially ends at 40. Welcome to middle age. And things happen in middle age uh, that you may not expect. There's a lot of development in you. If the Lord is not increasing in you, something else will be increasing in you. And then I remember being in uh, Ireland. And the brother was there who was a gerontologist, a physician who specializes in elderly people. I said, at what age will one Officially elderly. I just wanted to know. I wasn't afraid of it, but I just wanted to know. See, he thought, he was very thoughtful. He said, 75. So I think 70, that's the demise of middle age. But you can say, I'm not elderly. But he said 75. And to me, 75, that's also history. And so I, I get these unwanted, I don't know what if I, one time, one unwanted email advertisements. Is it because I just order some vitamins here and you, you sell my, my email address? I get all of these things, anti-aging, anti-aging. I like to tell them, I, I'm not anti-aging. I just want to be a normal person, an ordinary person. But in whatever stage we are, in our inner being, inwardly, and we'll see later in the church life practically, I'm living for God's eternal purpose. In life or in death, in joy or in sorrow, whatever it is, whatever the stage is. And a very good example of this is from the Old Testament, a boy about 12 lived through the destruction of his city, Jerusalem. And he, along with many other Jewish boys, Hebrew boys, was taken to Babylon, never to return. That was in fulfillment of the prophecy of 70 years of captivity. Eventually, he also knew Jeremiah prophesied the captivity would end. So he was there. And he had to get an education. And they tried to give him a certain diet 
he and his companions said, we're not going to eat that food. That to us is unclean. We have our own diet. And the one supervising him was very afraid. You're going to be emaciated. You're going to be sickly. Then I'm going to lose my head. And they said, we're not eating that food. And at that, that, a young age, at about 13, they made this decision. And they were the healthiest ones. They excelled in their education. They surpassed all the Babylonian kids. And eventually, using today's terms, Daniel went into civil service, government service, for decades. So that when the Medo-Persians took over the empire, they obviously recognized the capacity of this older person. And he was at, at the very highest level, almost next to the king in responsibility. And we know that those jealous of him <clears throat> deceived the king and got him to sign an edict that no one could pray for 30 days. Daniel heard about it, went home, continued to pray three times with his window open toward Jerusalem. So the point is this. The king tried to rescue him from being thrown into the lion's den. Daniel showed no sign of fear. And this is what the king said to him. Daniel, the God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then he referred to him, Daniel, servant of the living God. But he wasn't full time. No, he wasn't full time outwardly. He was full time inwardly. He excelled at what he did. He wasn't mediocre. There's nothing spiritual about being mediocre. We should be the best that we can be humanly in whatever line we're pursuing and advance in that. That's proper human character. But Daniel wasn't living for that. He wasn't living for a career. He was living for Jerusalem. He prayed desperately when he reviewed the prophecy from Jeremiah that the 70 years are ended. He prayed desperately in chapter 9. He received the revelation of the 70 weeks. To me, this is a pattern of someone who's in an environment arranged by the Lord, who developed his God-created abilities. He developed them in full. And the Spirit could use them in whatever way God shows. And he diligently worked and served, we would say, in his profession until a very advanced age. But the testimony he gave was, you serve God continually. This is the testimony we want to bear. Tomorrow night, in the second part of this, we'll address this. Because, just giving you a foretaste, if we choose to live for God's purpose, as we'll consider in the next 20 minutes, at the most 25 minutes, then we'll have plenty of time for you to share. But we're not saved from this generation. You will perish with this generation. 
We have to be able to be in this age, but not of this age. In this generation, but not of this generation. And if our young people, if the pattern continues, and this is the history, the highest percentage after junior high, high school, college, are lost. Even after many who have been in the training are lost. I don't know all the reasons, only the Lord knows. But one crucial part is, you're not saved from this crooked and perverted generation. But we'll consider that tomorrow. So how can we find what we need to know about what it's like to live for God's purpose? And the answer is with Paul. In First Thessalonians, First Timothy, one sixteen, I think I should read the verse. Not rely on memory. He says this. In verse fifteen, he said he was the foremost of sinners. Because of this, I was shown mercy. That in me, the foremost sinner. Jesus Christ might display all his long suffering for a pattern to those who are to believe on him unto eternal life. Paul received mercy to be a pattern. Now, here I need to make a distinction. The Lord is the model, he's the prototype, he is the one being reproduced in us. But God knows how we think. And I admit, I I can speak of this because I had this kind of reasoning. Say, Lord, look, you have all these requirements of me and all of us. But Lord, you have two advantages. One, you, you had no sin in you. My body is a body of sin. You didn't have that. The second advantage is, you're God. (laughs) You're God, and I'm not God. So, I thereby appeal to be excused. (laughs) Well, then the Lord would say, okay. He said all this long before I was born, but he might say, okay, Ron. uh, Let me tell you what I did. I took the worst kind of sinner, Saul of Tarsus. He was breathing out murder against my believers. He would barge his way into home meetings and drag out both brothers and sisters to the Sanhedrin, the religious court, and vote for the death penalty. We don't know how many lives were lost because of him. But the Lord had mercy on him and caused him to admit, I'm the foremost of sinners. Be be honest. You you haven't been breathing out murder anyone this whole week. Even if you got irritated, you haven't barged into anyone's home. He's the worst. So the Lord says, I will take this great sinner and through my mercy, I will make him a pattern to show you if he can live for my purpose, 
Any one of you can live for my purpose if you learn of the pattern. So I can't mention all the things, but I would begin with going back to 2 Timothy. And in chapter 3, we can't read the chapter, but Paul is pointing out a contrast between the trend and Timothy himself. The trend is men shall be lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, not lovers of God. They will have a form of godliness, but not the reality. Then in verse 10, he said, But you, Timothy, have closely followed. Now he will list a number of things. But the word my applies to all of them. But you have closely followed my teaching, conduct, my conduct, my purpose. You have closely followed my purpose. But in chapter 1, verse 9, he spoke of God's own purpose. But in 3.10, he speaks of my purpose. These are not two purposes. What happened was God's own purpose became Paul's own purpose. This is the first part of the pattern. We're not separated. God has an eternal purpose. And here I am on the earth. The Lord wants to do an inward work where the desire of his heart becomes the desire of your heart. The longing that's in him becomes the longing in you. The Lord might have had this in mind when he was teaching us about praying in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done. You may read that and say, all right, I'm going to get together with a friend. I'm going to pray for a condo in Maui. I'm going to play, pray for a Lamborghini. No, no. You are abiding in the Lord. His words are abiding in you. The words make known his desire. His desire becomes your desire. And your desire becomes your prayer. And your prayer expresses what's on God's heart. Because your heart and God's heart are one. The Lord is waiting for this kind of prayer. So Paul became a person in whom God's purpose became his purpose. And so Paul said to Timothy, you closely followed my purpose. And Timothy realized, yes, I did. And when I closely followed your purpose, I closely followed God's purpose because I saw that purpose lived out in the life of a human being. And this he was telling (coughs) Timothy We'll have to hear from Timothy himself. I hope we can hear from him in the kingdom. Timothy, what was it like 
to know that your spiritual father was soon to be martyred. He finished his course and you hadn't finished his course. And he's writing this to you. He has said, all Asia has turned from me. The whole region has abandoned me. There is degradation in the churches, but you have closely followed my purpose. So I'm not ashamed to say, I'm not classifying myself with Timothy, but I'm not ashamed to say, I follow Brother Witness Lee's purpose. Because that life, that ministry, that testimony was a manifestation of God's purpose lived out. A dear brother, some of us knew, he went to the Lord in the late 1980s, Bob Bynum. Bob Bynum told me this. He was with Brother Lee and an unbeliever, because this unbeliever was visiting Brother Lee at his apartment over a business matter. And so they completed the transaction. And then Brother Lee lifted up his sleeve and he pointed to his vein and he told him, every drop of blood in my body is for Christ and the church. And when Bob and this businessman were leaving, the man said to Bob, what kind of person is this? So we're not trying to imitate anybody. Imitation is always false. But we like to become, through the Lord's working himself into us, a person who can live an ordinary human life in all the situations, no matter what they are. Some of them are tragic. They're heartbreaking. Yet, here's a, a sister. She wrote me this lengthy email. She said, I had the feeling after you gave the message on warfare during the Memorial Day conference, I had the feeling you just come forward and share something. But she just wasn't able to do it. The situation didn't allow her to do it. So she wrote it out. Because her daughter passed away at 44. At 44. And what they all experienced, they witnessed her daughter finishing her course in victory. But just as a mother, as a human, how unbelievably heartbreaking it was. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the enemy's cruel harassment, she could fall down before the Lord and worship him. That even in this, in the midst of this, I live to you for your purpose. And then I, time went by. The son-in-law, he needs to go on. His course is not finished. He has three sons. Someone sent me a photo of the sister. The Lord waited until she was approaching middle age. He, he, he made her wait on this purpose. The Lord brought them together. There's such joy. And I just checked with the brother. 
I know there's a mixed feeling here. There's the loss and there's the joy. I know you're not alone. But I'm just surrounded in the churches. My whole life in the churches, there's always been someone there. Whatever it was going on in their human life, whatever the stage, they're just living here for God's purpose. There was an older brother among the four elders in Eldon Hall, Samuel Chang, an in-law of Brother Watchman Nee. And he was known for his one-liners, literally very succinct statements. So one time I was ushering, I'm testifying of him, not of me. I was ushering, which meant I had to stay until everyone was gone out of the hall, no matter how long the elders had their meeting. It was my responsibility to close it up. And so they came out, and I really wanted to share something with Brother Chang, and he could sense it. So he, he just paused by me, and, and he said, Indicate, go ahead. So I told him something I thought I was experiencing. And then he gave me one line. He said, Brother, the Lord will make you real. Well, that indicated to me I wasn't real. <laughs> what I was saying wasn't real, but I wasn't bothered. It was the prophecy. And so in 1984, I visited him at his hospital bed, and there he was, the living testimony again. Maybe when I see him, hopefully in the kingdom, I'll say, Brother Chang, he said, the Lord will make you real. And look, I'm real. And he may say, I know, I prayed for you. <laughs> you got nothing to boast in. Churches need the presence of saints like this. Amen. And Paul was that kind of person. So what are some of the characteristics of his life? They can only give ones that just come forth. I'm not trying to give a comprehensive list. The first thing was, he was a man of vision. That's how his life began. Now, our life with the Lord is not going to begin the way he did. We're not going to be knocked off a horse <clears throat> by a light brighter than the sun. <clears throat> with most of us, the vision will come little by little. So don't accept the, accept the lie of the enemy. You're inferior to everybody else. They're all having Damascus Road experiences except you. No one is having those experiences. Just little by little, little by little, the veil is lifted, the light shines, the eyes of your heart are open, you see something. And that vision governs you. And then based upon that vision, Paul became an open vessel so at least three times in his writings, he referred to this in Romans 9, were vessels of mercy unto glory. In 2 Timothy 2, it's vessels of honor. In 2 Corinthians 4, it's earthen vessels with a treasure. So realizing he's a vessel, 
indicates he knew how to relate to the Lord in a personal way. I'm the vessel. You want to be the content. You want to dispense yourself into me. You want to make your home in my heart. You want to saturate me. You want to permeate me. And this is how he lived. Otherwise, he couldn't have prayed the way he did in Ephesians 3. He was probably chained to a centurion. He knelt down in his cell. And he prayed that the Father of glory would strengthen us with power through his spirit into the inner man that Christ may make his home in our hearts. This is the prayer. So he lived as an open vessel before the Lord and trusted in the divine dispensing. Then based on this, two particular attributes were developed in him together. And he refers to them at the end of Titus. That is, faith and love. Faith and love. Faith means, I can't be it. I can't take it. I can't make it. And I can't do it. Apart from this, everything is okay. I I just can't make it. I can't I can't take it. I, I I just can't I can't this is it now. I can't be that. I can't do that. So God only asks us to do what we can't do. He only asks us to do what, what he can do. And that's what faith is. It means I'm not, and he is. And it's such a relief to realize. I can't be it, so I'm not going to try. I can't do it, so I won't try. I can't take it, I won't try. But neither will I give up. I'm just going to love the Lord, enjoy the Lord, let him live in me. That's faith. And love is the capacity to enjoy what faith receives. And then on the practical level, Paul was a full-timer, but at a certain period of time, there was no support coming from the churches. So he went back to his trade. He was a tent maker. He must have learned that trade early on, maybe in Antioch. And Aquila and Priscilla, they were also tent makers. And again, I'd like to talk with Paul. I'd like to tell him, Paul, I've got an idea about you. I think you made the best tents. You made the Rolls Royces of tents. And you sold them for a good price. Because you did this to support all the other co-workers. He would say to them, look, you just work all through the day. I'll join you at night. I'm going to make tents to support all of us. He wasn't beyond working with his hands in an ordinary way. And then the time is coming to an end. I want to stop in five minutes. Paul's church life. 
when he tried to have fellowship with the church in Jerusalem, the apostles and elders said, we don't have anything to do with you. You're trying to kill us. So Barnabas interceded for him, gave his testimony. But then Paul had to leave Jerusalem. Eventually, Barnabas brought him to Antioch. And the Lord placed him in a multiracial church situation. Very good. Very good for him. To really know what the one new man is. To really experience Christ nullifying all the divisive elements related to ethnicity, to race, nationality, culture, social class, economic level, educational level. Just to be a brother there. And then when he had established some churches and was writing to the Corinthians the second time. And he knew that many of them there had been poisoned regarding his apostleship, although he was the spiritual father who brought them to the Lord. And he was trying to reconcile them to him for their sake, not for his sake, for their sake. Then he told them, I will gladly spend and be utterly spent on your behalf. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. So the one who started out trying to destroy the church and to kill us ended pouring out his being for a church in which many of the members had no regard for him. But I want to end this way and maybe any, anyway, it's just the way I feel to end. It's, uh, it's a very important practical matter concerning the long-term church life, the long-term. What will be the situation after 10 years, 25 years, 40 years, more than that, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says something to me quite, quite sad and on the other hand encouraging because of Timothy. Verse 19 and following. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged by knowing the things concerning you. For I have no one like sold who will genuinely care for what concerns you. Genuinely care for what concerns you. Then the next verse. For all seek their own things, not the things of Christ Jesus. That can happen. Oh, you're a burning Teenager, a 20-something, consecrate in a vital way at a retreat or a conference. Then all the aspects of human life, you're married, you have your health, you have your retirement, 
You have what you call your career. That word is not in my vocabulary, but it might be in others. And these are your own things. You care for your own things, not the things of Christ Jesus. Paul only had one person who would genuinely care for what concerned the saints in Philippi. And the things of Christ Jesus, as the footnote says, the things of Christ Jesus are the things concerning the church with all the saints. The church with all the saints. So Paul was living for God's eternal purpose, not only personally, but having that purpose become his purpose and being a vessel into which Christ can dispense himself and reproduce himself. But he just loved the church, no matter what the condition was, no matter how they treated him. He said, the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And he was, he was aware of the situation. Now someone's in the church. Sometimes, parents, I'm speaking generically now. I'm not aiming this at anybody. I don't do that. They give mixed messages to their growing sons and daughters. We're for Christ in the church, but why is it? Why is it? that more opposition to recent college graduates, sisters or brothers coming to the training, more comes from saints in the church than from the outside. Do you know that? Again and again, after decades, someone says, what do I do? My dad doesn't want me to come. He requires that I stop after one year. Well, then I have to share something from Matthew 10. Then I, then I follow the same line of questioning. Oh, your parents are not saved. No, they're saved. Oh, they're not in the church. No, they're in the church. Then why? It's their own things. Don't, don't, be, don't be that extreme. If you go to the full-time training, you might end up being a full-timer. Even worse girl, you might marry a co-worker. Then you'll be in poverty for the rest of your life. I'm exaggerating a little. <laughs> Just this one matter in affluent countries, but also in countries where people are struggling to exist, all care for their own things, not the things of Christ Jesus. And the things of Christ Jesus are the church with all the saints. So if we are living for God's purpose before him, we will be an open vessel. Following the vision to the extent to which we see it, we live a life of consecration. And then we are in an actual, practical, local church filled with human beings in various stages of being transformed. And we have to love the actual practical local church and care for the church and for all the saints. So when we have this combination, 
of being a vessel open to the Lord, governed by the vision, day by day, being filled and saturated with Christ, living a normal human life in whatever stage we're in, and living a church life that's in an imperfect situation with all kinds of people there. But you love the churches, you love the saints without partiality, without preference, and they know. Forgive me to say this, it'll be very bold. That's why someone from any source, from any background, of any race, from any nationality, from any any ethnicity, you come to me for fellowship, I will say, I open my heart to you. Read my heart. I love you the same as I love all the others. Because this is the God whom I serve. He loves human beings. He loves his children. He loves his churches. And so I'm in a stage now that I wasn't in in 1966. I don't know when my journey will end. Right now, Not going that way, but going this way. But the Lord will decide. Until then, I just want to carry out God's purpose with all of you. May the Lord bless us to fulfill his eternal purpose. Amen. Amen. So maybe those, those who feel to, just pray with someone nearby for a minute. Then maybe we can have 15 or 20 minutes for sharing. The brothers will direct us, okay? If you don't want to pray, just be quiet for a minute and let us make noise to the Lord. Okay.